How many of you blessed this morning? Today is number four in our series called Habits. We have been using, I, I've used, obviously, the Holy Bible. That's an interesting concept, isn't it, to use the Bible? Uh, obviously, that's central. The Bible is, provides for us our rule of faith and conduct as believers. We are a Bible church. We are a kingdom-focused, gospel-driven, presence-centered congregation that are building grace-based relationships. We need to walk in forgiveness and mercy and love toward each other. Somebody say amen if you agree with what I'm saying this morning. But I also believe that there are times then we can be able to grab some concepts. Uh, this is from the business world. Stephen Covey wrote this book 30 years ago, and it's back on the bestseller list again right now, called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I've been using a book called The Power of Habits by Charles Duhigg, who is a famous reporter, and then another one by James Clear called Atomic Habits. And so the combination of all of these things has provided inspiration to start our first of the year series, which is actually going to run longer than we normally do. We do six or eight weeks. This one's actually going to run about 10, because I really feel like this is helping folks. If you've been here and this has helped you, somebody say Amen. I believe that there are things that we can do to begin to set ourselves on a path where we can walk in victory. Jesus didn't come and die for us to live totally, completely defeated lives in every respect and every regard. He didn't just come so that you could have a way into heaven and live eternally. That is one of the most amazing blessings and benefits of the work of Jesus. But he also came that we might have life and have it more abundantly, and that's for right now. Somebody say, right now. And so I, I believe that the things that we struggle with that victimize us as the people of God, and if we, if we will take time to get real, uh, they're the same things that affect our other friends and people in the community that haven't confessed Christ, that don't know the Lord. How I many you know just because you're Christian doesn't mean you don't struggle with some problems? I also want you to know that it, it means that the Lord doesn't intend for us to keep constantly struggling. We can get victory over our struggles. We can see a mountain be moved out of our way and thrown into the midst of the sea, Mark chapter 11 tells us. So this morning, as we jump into this message, the title is Begin with the End in Mind. And I have two texts, two texts from Isaiah chapter 50. Go ahead and put that up there for me, if you would, please. This is prophetic of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 50, two verses, verse 6 and 7. Listen, I offered my back to those who beat me and my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mockery and spitting because the sovereign Lord helps me. Everybody say, helps me. I will not be disgraced, therefore I have... Read it, what's in, emboldened. I have set my face like a stone, read the next line, determined to do his will. One more little section. And I know that I will not be put to shame. Everybody say, set your face like a stone. <laughs> All right, so this is speaking of the Lord Jesus and his determination to fulfill the will of God in his life, the destiny of the Father on his life. I want to grab this concept and how it was fleshed out in Jesus' life and ministry. In Matthew chapter 16, you will see that things began to shift 
Jesus has just had a remarkable conversation with the disciples. He's asked them, who do men say that I am? Peter steps up and he answers the question, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus gives Peter an A in the class and he says, step to the front of the room. You, you, you get the, the, the best grade for today, Peter. He says, because flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my father, which is in heaven, revealed that unto you. And so they just have a moment of celebration, and Peter probably is having to wrestle with a little bit of personal spiritual pride because he had the right answer. How many of you know Peter doesn't always have the right answer? How many, how many know I'm thankful that Peter's in the Bible because he, he makes me to know there's hope for me. He, he always was opening his mouth and inserting his great big old fisherman sandal right up in the middle of his mouth. And so Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, Verses 21 through 26. From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was, read it with me, necessary for him to go to Jerusalem, I'll read, and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. But now watch what Peter does now. Remember, he was just at the head of the class. But Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said. Say it with me. This will never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and he said, now watch this. He's talking to a man, but look what he says. Get away from me, Satan, Satan, adversary. You are, say it, dangerous trap to me. The King James says an offense. An offense, a trap. You're a dangerous trap to me. You're seeing things merely from a, read it, a human point of view. Remember, we've learned this. What we see determines how we act, okay? You're seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your what? To your life. You will lose it. But if you give up your what? Your life for my sake, you will save it. Last verse. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Let's bow our hearts together for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, help us today. I ask you for healing in my physical body today. I ask you to be in my thoughts and my words Holy Spirit, you're the only teacher. Only you can do. No man can do it. And I, I recognize and I acknowledge before you and this people that I desperately need you. Matter of fact, Lord, I say it, I need you more right now than I've ever needed you in my whole life. I ask you to, to be in the hearts and the minds and the, the hearing and the seeing of your people. Let them perceive and understand. Let their hearts be penetrated with the word of God, with the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. I ask you, Lord, to challenge us, to change us, to comfort us, to encourage us, to strengthen us, to correct us, oh God. Holy Spirit, do what only you can do, and we'll be careful to give you the praise and all of God's people said, amen. One thing, one thing I preach, have been for years using this concept that like a chorus that we return to and sing again over and over in a song, I will return to this because this one thing I want you to grasp. If you don't remember anything that I've said this morning, I want you to grasp the one thing. The one thing is this. Read with me, please. Without a clear vision, I will never 
fulfill my destiny. Say it like you mean it. Come on. Without a clear vision, I will never fulfill my destiny. Turn to your neighbor and put it in the, their person. Say it. Without a clear vision, you will never fulfill your destiny. Quick review. First three messages. We're talking about laws. When I say law, I don't mean like the moral law of God, like the Ten Commandments. But I'm talking about a principle. A principle. You, you, you must remember that when we sow a Bible principle, we will always reap a Bible result. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. This is a principle in science. Physics teaches us for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. For every action, there is a consequence. You pick up a stick the action is on one end. The consequence comes with it. You don't get to choose the consequence. You reap what you sow. In due season, we shall reap a harvest of blessing if we don't quit, if we don't give up. Look at your neighbor and say, don't ever quit. We review, and so these principles are this. As a matter of fact, every time you open your Bible, let me just let me back up and say this a moment because I'm reminded of this this week. Listen, if God's not talking, don't accuse him of being mute if your Bible is closed. If you're not hearing the voice of the Lord in your life and your Bible is closed, then guess whose fault it is? Because he's going to speak to you from the well of the word that is down inside your heart. Every time you open your Bible... You should ask some questions. Is there a commandment to be obeyed? This is not part of my message. It's just what the Holy Spirit's reminded me of, and I'm going to chase it quickly. Is there a promise to be believed? Is there an example to be followed? I'll just give you one more. There's probably eight of them, but this I'll get, I'll get four this morning. Is there a principle to be understood and applied? So when we talk about laws, we're talking about this aspect of principles of the kingdom of God. Uh, unit one or lesson one, message one, we talked about the law of little things. Jesus said, if you're faithful in little things, then I will make you ruler over much. If you are a good steward over this small amount of resource, of finance, then I will put in your hands the great responsibility of handling even more things. Number two, we talked about the law of perspective, and we said... We said, what we see determines how we act. I don't have time to go back and re-preach that message. These are online at victorywired.com.org, both of those, and they're free. They don't cost you anything. We don't sell anything with the Word. Jump on there, and you can play it through your computer. You can play it through your smartphone or device. Uh, you can get it sent directly to you through iTunes with our podcast and we got some other things that are cooking too that we're excited we'll be announcing later this month in the way of some new technology to help you get into the Word. Last week we talked about the law of choice. And we said the choices that I made yesterday affect the person that I am today. That's basically kind of another way of talking about the law of sowing and reaping. I make choices, those choices affect my life. Picture with me just a moment. Picture a funeral. You walk in. And all of your friends are there. Something is strange because you have kind of an invisibility. Nobody's noticing you. No one is speaking to you. And they're all filing forward to the front of the place where they're meeting to celebrate this person's life. And so you stand in line and get up there only to see that it's you in the casket. 
a little bit of a morbid thought. But you sit down to observe to see what's going to take place because you've been given the privilege of being able to view and observe how people are going to celebrate your life. And you listen as various friends file forward and they talk about your generosity and your kindness and these various things that marked your life. And so you sit and you, you, you really begin to ponder, is this real? Is this happening to me? And so I would ask you this morning, if you were given one year to live, if every one of you in this room knew that you had exactly 365 days to fulfill the destiny that God had called you to do, and then your last breath would be drawn into your lungs and you would graduate to glory. If you knew you only had one year to live, what would you change? If you knew you only had one year to live, how would it affect your walk with God if you have one? If you don't have one, would it move you toward asking some questions from an eternal perspective? If you knew you only had one year to live and you knew that you could affect what people would say about you, uh, how would this affect how you would treat your spouse and raise your family and spend your money and the pursuits that you went after and your dreams and your goals and your career? How would you live? So this morning, today's message as we talk about beginning with the end in mind, the, the message is about the law of vision. Everybody say vision. The law of vision. And, and the Amplified says it this way. It says, where there is no vision, no revelation of God in his word, the people are unrestrained. But happy and blessed is he who keeps the law of God. Where there is no vision, if you don't have some direction and an end that you're working toward, then everything is just willy-nilly. It really doesn't matter which decision you choose because you don't have an end in mind. There's no vision that's motivating your life. The New American Standard says, Where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained. But happy is he who keeps the law. The New Living Translation says, When people do not accept divine guidance, they run wild. But whoever obeys the law is joyful. Two more. The NIV says, Where there is no revelation, people cast off restraint. But blessed is the one who heeds wisdom's instruction. I love the message. This is the last translation I'm going to give. It says, If people can't see what God is doing... They stumble all over themselves. But when they attend to what he reveals, they are most blessed. When people can't see and discern the vision that God has for your life, you stumble in the dark making arbitrary random decisions that may or may not be a blessing to you. And so we want to learn how to pay attention to divine guidance and apply the wisdom instruction that is in the word of the Lord. The principle is that if I will get a vision, then God will bless me if I will walk in that vision. But if I ignore that vision and the guidance of God, then I, I, I'm, I'm clearly in trouble because our one thing is what? Without a clear vision, I will never fulfill my destiny. If you believe that, say amen. First point this morning, I want to jump to two heroes in the New Testament. Two obvious ones, Paul and Christ. Jesus himself. The Apostle Paul is very fond of using Olympic imagery, metaphors of races that are to be run. 
battles that are to be fought where we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 that I buffet my body. Sometimes I, well, I like to read that differently. I buffet my body. That's, I, <laughs> he, he says I buffet my body. It's not the French word buffet. It's I buffet. I buffet it in order to bring myself under subjection because I do not want to run the race because when you run the race, one wins the prize, he says in 1 Corinthians 9, 26, 27. He says, because the least that I want, I do not want this. I don't want to run a race and then get disqualified because I didn't stay in my lane or because I broke the rules or because I didn't run according to the vision or the pattern that God had given me. Jesus says right here in this passage that we read, Christ set his face like a stone. Maybe you've heard it all your life if you've grown up in church. The King James says he set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. And so there is a kind of stoic determination. He is not going to quit. He is not going to back up until he fulfills. The next phrase said he was determined to do the will of God. How many of you know when you get a clear picture and you're confident of what you know God wants you to do, then you can summon up and you can, you can marshal some forces of determination and confidence that you're doing what God has called you to do. Put your hands together and give the Lord praise. Come on. We live in a culture, a corporate culture, an American consumerist society where we're attempting to walk out the principles of the kingdom of God in spite of the pull and the draw to, to work more so we can buy more, so we can store more, so we can have more, so we can compare ourselves more to the people who live in the house next to us, only to have a great big garage sale and clean it out and try to give away and so we can go buy more and hock up our credit cards more. Come on, how many of you know what I'm talking about? And, and so much of what we are drawn into is a ladder of success concept in this culture in which we live in America. And, and this is one thing that Dr. Stephen Covey says in this book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. He says, For, far too often, men and women spend all of their lives stepping on the shoulders and the heads of other friends and people and colleagues trying to climb the ladder of success only to get to the top and realize that it was leaning against the wrong wall. And so what we're pursuing, is it something that has an eternal value to it or is it merely temporary success? And is it something that is really going to make a difference and matter in the lives of those that I love and I'm building into my spouse, my children, my grandchildren, my friends, my family, my job, my career, my business, those that I'm leading as an employer? I don't want to climb the ladder of success and only find out that it's leaning against the wrong wall. Without a clear vision, I will never fulfill my destiny. Say it with me. Without a clear vision, I will never fulfill my destiny. Point number two this morning is that we need a new paradigm. That's not four nickels or two dimes. A paradigm is, it is a way of seeing things. A paradigm is a new pair of glasses. It gives me the ability to see things from a new perspective. The paradigm is this, begin with the end in mind. 
the very same way that I ask you to just think a moment about what it would mean if you could observe your funeral and you had an opportunity to change things. It was, it was the famous philosopher, Christian philosopher, C.S. Lewis, that said, we cannot start again to make a new beginning, but we can start right now and make a new end. I can change things in my life. This subtitle of this book is Powerful Lessons in Personal Change. The whole ministry of the gospel is how God is able to transform us and change us personally down to the very core of who we are as people if we will just submit our lives to Him and let Him be Lord over our lives and our hearts. Come on, put your hands together and give the Lord praise. What is this new paradigm? What do you mean, Pastor? Well, I want you to get a concept here. All things are created twice. Everything is created at least two times. What do you mean all things are created twice? Well, this building that we're in didn't just happen accidentally. It began in my mind. I shared a vision with a board of trustees. We began to flesh this thing out kind of in the direction that we wanted to go and we met with an architect and those initial seeds that were in my mind and the thoughts that I had began to get down on paper and they developed a blueprint. And so the first creation was a blueprint which the construction manager and the subcontractors could all work from. I don't know if you realize or not, but I didn't stand out here every day and go, no, I want that three inches to, to that side over there. They had a blueprint that they worked from. It was created in the mind first, in the thoughts, something that I saw, something that I had a vision for. I began with the end in mind. By the way, we're not finished yet. There's a whole lot more yet to come. When, when it quits raining in Arkansas this winter, we're going to do some landscaping around here. Somebody say amen. <laughs> Revelation 13, 8, it says, Behold the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. What does that have to do with all things were created twice? Well, before Jesus ever came in a flesh and bone body and died on the cross of Calvary, he had been crucified in the mind of God before the world was ever made. So that happened once in God's mind, and then it happened in reality when Jesus came to fulfill the wish and the mind and the vision of God. Somebody say amen if you know what I'm talking about. We serve a God who incarnates his thoughts. The word was made flesh. The thinker thought, the thinker spoke, and the word was made flesh. And he dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father. So we realize that everything is created twice. To begin with the end in mind means that I need to learn how to live by that design or I have a choice. I can live by design or by default. I don't want to shame anyone in the room this morning, but chances are a whole considerable number of you are just living in default mode. You're just sort of on automatic pilot. And, and you're living a reactive life rather than being proactive and taking steps toward a clear vision that you're confident in that the Lord wants for your business or for your marriage or for your home or for your family or for your life, your ministry, for your destiny. Without a clear vision, I can never fulfill my destiny. Somebody say amen. I don't want to live by default where I just kick in gear and run automatic pilot and just sort of just float willy-nilly but I want to live by design. I'd like if you would to put back Matthew chapter 16 one more time. And I want to see these verses, particularly 
as we look at, let's look at verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. He said, heaven forbid, he said, this will never happen to you. Jesus' response turned to Peter and he said, get away from me, Satan. You're a dangerous trap to me. How many of you know sometimes the people that are closest to you can be the greatest hindrance in your life to fulfilling the vision God has for you? If they don't see it, if they don't understand the sacrifice it's going to require, if they don't understand the commitment it's going to take, when others would say, no, 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 we don't want that to happen. Let's, t- let's take a different course. Uh, I remember some people after Dawn died basically said to me, you know, are, are you just going to give up and sell and move and go somewhere else and start fresh? I said, no, I can't do that possibly. I have a, I have a vision that God's given me I have to fulfill. I have to finish it. And he says, you're seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. When people observe things through their own selfish lens, their personal desires, through a center in their life that is not Jesus, that is not built on the center of the Word of God, then they can come to all kinds of conclusions and give you what they think is wisdom, and it's really a lie from the pit of hell. Get behind me, Satan, Jesus said. You're an offense to me. You're a trap. You're a dangerous trap because you're not looking at this from a kingdom perspective. You're looking at it from a human viewpoint. So this morning, I don't want to live by default. I want to live by design. And I need to recognize that I have to learn to graciously say no. You know, it's hard for some people to say no. But until you learn to say no, you will never have time to do the things that you know you need to say yes to. Come on, this is just intensely practical. And the issue is when you're attempting to accomplish something, there's always a tension between leadership and management, and they're not the same thing. And and I'm not poo-pooing one over the other. We need both, leadership and management. But I want you to recognize this morning that leadership in your life determines the wall that the ladder's leaning against. Management helps you get up the steps. You all need to be leaders in your lives. You need to be submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, recognizing that the wall you're leaning against and the pursuits that you're taking are eternal in value. That that God can take something jacked up and messed up and broken and He can make it beautiful in His time if you don't quit. Hallelujah. Leadership determines the wall the ladder is leaning against, but management gets us up the steps. I didn't take a lot of time on Martin Luther King weekend because I knew I was going to pay some attention to these things during Black History Month. And I just want to play a little quick one-minute, 15-second clip by a powerful, anointed leader, man of God. And I'll make a comment in just a moment. Go ahead and run. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up live out the true meaning of its creeds. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will they be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream my poor little children one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content.
1 minute 18 seconds. He was struggling in this speech and a matriarch in the gospel, Mahalia Jackson, is behind him and he's struggling to get his words out and Mahalia says, tell him about your dream, Martin. Some of you don't know that history, but that's what happened. She was right behind him and said, come on, Martin, tell him about your dream. Everything he says in the next 10 minutes all was off the cuff. It wasn't written down. And I remember hearing this when I was seven years old and I remember sitting in my living room as a little boy and looking at my arm as the hair stood up on my arm because I'd grown up in a house where we appreciated the Holy Ghost, where when my granddad prayed, I felt something. And it wasn't because he was being loud, because he could whisper and the Spirit of God would fall. And I learned what it was to appreciate and love the presence of God. And when I heard this on national television, and I heard this black man saying, I have a dream that one day all of our children will sit down at the table of brotherhood and our children will be judged not by the color of their skin but by the content of their character. Something grabbed a hold of me down in my heart. I remember going to a church when I was a little boy. They taught us in Sunday school to sing red and yellow, black and white. They're all precious in his sight. And then the first Sunday that a black family visited, the deacons asked him to leave. And it broke my heart. And I made God a promise as a youngster. I said, if you'll let me someday raise up a church in the Delta that has a, that's life-giving, I will see to it, oh God, that we demonstrate what the kingdom of God is about. That grace is bigger than race. And if you don't think that Martin didn't begin with an end in mind, he, he had the responsibility of casting the vision for a victimized people and not just for other folks that are different from that color to get in a place of tension and frustration and hatred. And, and let me just say this. If me talking like this makes you feel the least little bit uncomfortable, then I humbly, I humbly beg you to please check your heart. Please check your heart. Because Jesus died that a people out of every kindred, tribe, and tongue, and nation. <clears throat> would gather around the throne and lift their voices in praise and say, Jesus, be the center of it all. Hallelujah. You need leadership that casts the vision. You need management that gives us steps to be able to accomplish it. And you need to be both of those in your life. You need to, under the leadership of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit in your life, to determine which wall your ladder is going to lean against before you start managing the steps to climb to success, only to be disappointed that it's leaning against the wrong wall. You must manage your time. You must catch a vision for where you're headed, and then manage your time and your resources and your skills and your gifts. And like Jesus, make your decisions in line with the will of God, the vision he has for your life, and be determined to complete his will. Somebody help me this morning. I'm struggling just to speak, so I, I need a little bit of help. Come on, help me in the room today. Without a clear vision... I will never fulfill my destiny. Point number three, and I'm finished this morning. You see, it's the little things. Song of Solomon said, it's the little foxes that spoil the vine. People come and sit in my office 
for marriage counseling because they're struggling and most of the time it's not because of infidelity. It's not because of spousal abuse. But it's just the whole accumulation of a bunch of little things. It's the lack of consideration. It's respect that's gone. It's love that's missing. And it's the little foxes that have begun to multiply and they're destroying the vines of life. Little things we must pay attention to. And it's what we see in our future that determines how we act. The choices that I made yesterday affect the person I am today. Let me just bump that up for you. Choices you will make today will affect the person that you are tomorrow. Somebody say amen. You don't just, this is where I draw the line. I believe that we can learn because every one of these principles are biblical. As a matter of fact, he quotes scripture all over this book. Every one of those principles are biblical, and that's the reason why they work. So many times the business world turns to identifiable, eternal principles, and they're able to bring success into various pursuits and avenues and ventures because they're kingdom principles. Because when you sow a Bible principle, you will always reap a Bible result. Somebody say amen. This is not something you just make a decision that you're going to just dream as big as you can and make up whatever in your mind is the vision for your life. No, 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 no. When your heart is submitted to Jesus Christ as Lord of your life, you have to discover your vision. You have to detect it. You have to discern it. It's not self-determined, but I must seek the Lord and say, God, what is your will for my life? Where is my Jerusalem? What must I be determined to finish and complete in my life? I, I, I can glibly acknowledge that I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, but it's something else to press down into it and bear down and say, God, what is the blueprint that you have for my life? The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. God, you've marked my days and numbers, numbered the hairs of my head. What is your determination for my life? We must find a new center. I have one illustration and I'm finishing this message. We must find a new center. If you would put that up for me, please. This is in the book in this chapter on beginning with the end in mind. And notice it has all of these things that we're all affected by. Let's start on at 9 o'clock. Self, spouse, family, money, work, possessions, pleasure, friends, enemies, church. Now, the challenge that we all have is that every one of those things that are on the perimeter try to worm their way into the center. They try to become the standard or the governing principle in our lives. I, I want to tell you that we must be principle-centered people. We must not be self-centered because if I'm self-centered, the world revolves around me. Every decision that I make is going to be for self-aggrandizement. It's going to be for my self-pleasure. If I'm pleasure-centered, then it's all about what I'm enjoying at the moment. Let me just give you an illustration. You have two tickets to the favorite band that you and your wife both love. It's something that you've planned, and the day of the concert that night, your boss comes to you. This is a Friday afternoon, and it's a critical moment where he desperately needs some weekend time put in. And he says, we're this close to closing this deal and you are the key player. You're integral to finishing this deal and I need you 
to stay tonight and work late, and I need you to work through the whole weekend because we've got to get this finished because this is going to make the difference that will put our company over. It will give you a promotion, and it will give you a substantial $20,000 a year increase. Now, if you're any one of those centered, if you're spouse-centered and your world revolves around her, now, ladies, don't get offended, but I want to tell you right now, it is not biblical that you're the center of his life. Jesus is supposed to be the center of his life. Sisters, it's not the will of God that he is the center of your heart and your life. Jesus is supposed to be the center of your heart. If you're spouse-centered, you don't even think. You react and you go, oh, I'm sorry, I can't do it. My wife comes first. Uh, we bought these tickets. We need this time. Our, our, we've been struggling because I've put in so much time. And the boss says, okay, fine, I'll get somebody else then. You're fired. Well, you know, that may, ha- that may be a decision you need to make. But don't do it because you're spouse-centered. You know, if, if your family is the center of everything you do, then we have a tendency to kind of make an idol out of it and worship at that throne. And only Jesus can be on the throne of our hearts and the center of our lives. Only we can raise, only we can raise well-rounded, established, confident children if we show them what it means to be sacrificial and to walk with the Lord and as men be able to apologize when we've done or said the wrong thing and to be able to say, I'm sorry. We live out of a principle-centered, Word of God center in our lives. Come on, somebody. Are you hearing me this morning? I'm not going to take the time to go all the way around the circle, but if you're money-centered, you just call your wife and go, no, baby, I'm sorry, I've got to work tonight because you know that you're going to get a promotion and $20,000 increase is coming. And then you know what? You may end up losing your wife because if she feels like that's what you always do because you're a workaholic and you're work-centered, that's the reason we have to be principle-centered, get the Word of God and the wisdom of God at the center of our hearts so that we can make objectively accurate decisions, not out of any one of these other centers, whether it's work or possessions. Oh, man, I, I need to get this because I, I, I'm, I'm lusting after that new boat. We're going to buy a new house with a four-car garage. And you start thinking about all these things that you're climbing the ladder of success, and at the center of your life is possessions and stuff then you're driven about getting in there and getting that money. And you, you probably use your love language because you don't spend time with your kids. You just give them a lot of stuff. You give them a lot of possessions. And you're going to turn around in one of these days and you're going to realize all they ever wanted was just time with you. They didn't want a bunch of junk. They want to know dad. They want to know mom. Come on. Am I helping somebody this morning? We can be friend-centered. Well, we, we, we're going to go to this concert because friends from church are going and I, I want to be there with them. That's great. But your friends shouldn't be the center of your life. The principle of the Word of God and Jesus should be the center of your life. Come on, somebody. Now, this sounds crazy, but there are some folk who make the enemy the center of their lives. They're obsessed with somebody that they hate. Maybe it's a whole people group. Maybe it's tension that's been created in your life because of some hatred that happened as a youngster. God help us. We certainly don't need to be enemy-centered. I just want to tell you, some, some of you probably don't even believe that that's up there. I don't believe church ought to be the center of your life either. Having church as the center of your life is not the same thing as having Jesus the center of your life. Come on. You can serve on all the teams. You can, you can show up with a smile on your face and still be dead inside your heart. As a matter of fact, sometimes, so, let me just tell you, that's why we don't crowd up our calendar. Somebody says, well, when are you going to start a Sunday night service? Uh, we're going to do that the 12th of never. 
I don't know about you, but I have I read my Bible through every year since I was 18, and I've never found where it said you got to come back for the second time on Sunday to be a full worshiper. When we started Victory, it was made up of a whole lot of young couples with small children. And, and I remember we had a few folks, and we're meeting down at the shoebox, and they were just pressing, let's have a Sunday night service, let's have a Sunday night service. So I got our core group together, and we had a Sunday night service. And do you know the three families that kept asking to have a Sunday night service never showed up? <laughs> and you know, our core group said, hey, listen, we're walking with God. We're all having a devotional every day. We're meeting as deacons and elders and all this. And we don't need it. We, we need the family time to be able to chill out on Sunday night and be able to get ready for work on Monday morning. And so we dropped it then. And let me just tell you, it's crazy to me how folks are drawn to victory because we do things different. But six months in, they come to me and go, well, when are you going to do this like I used to do at my old church? Well, never. We do things differently on purpose. Somebody say amen. I would rather you be committed to one or two things than to be overcommitted to 15 things and just be in an activity trap, busy, but not really learning how to follow the Lord. Come on, somebody. Is anybody getting anything out of this this morning? All right, I'm, I'm, I'm right at my close here, so just hang with me. I, I want Sydney and the praise team to come back because I want to say this. We... This year, want to open our hearts to establish a habit of prayer and surrender and yieldedness because we're all tempted to be somewhere on that circle and pull that one thing to the center. Your children, your career, there are other things that could go on that circle. But we need the Word of God and Jesus at the center of our lives. We need to be able to move from that point of being centered so that we can be balanced, so that we can be objective, so that we can look at all the circumstances and let the Holy Spirit lead us. Because it's not always the same answer. Now, if you're centered on any other of those things, those things are always going to pull you to how you would make that decision, whether you would take your wife to that concert or whether you would work the whole weekend. It's just an illustration. But we need Jesus in this moment. And I'm going to ask you, we don't usually do this, but I just believe that we need to have a moment of commitment before we ask for hands for prayer. So let's just stay seated, and I'm going to have the praise team come back, and I want us to lift up this chorus one more time, and let's make it a prayer. Jesus, be the center of my life.